1: Hello everyone. Welcome back to the collaboration between Eurosport and the Beautiful Game. We're here to talk about the first weekend of Euro 2020 and wow, what a weekend it was. We had amazing goals, brilliant saves, and of course one very, very scary moment on the pitch. I'm Pete Sherland from Eurosport and today I'm joined by Dot and Dej from the Beautiful
2: Game. Chaps, how are we doing? Very well, Pete. Great intro. <laughs> <laughs>
3: I'm doing very, very well. Lots to get stuck into, as you mentioned. A big talking point, so yeah, let's go on.
1: Excellent. Um, Let's start, of course, with the biggest talking point from the weekend, which is Christian Eriksen. I wanted to start by um, saying, of course, how grateful and how thankful we are. A, that Christian Eriksen seems to be recovering and doing well, and B, to both the Danish players for the way they reacted and the medical staff who did everything they could to bring Eriksen back. Because, of course, they have now confirmed that he was temporarily dead and they've managed to resuscitate him. It was a terrifying moment for everyone watching it. And I think it really was a case of the world stopping still for that. I wanted to start with you Dot to sort of get A, your immediate immediate reaction to what was happening and B, sort of, do you think that there are steps that we can take from the aftermath of this?
2: I was scared. I was, I was really scared. You never want to see something like that on a football pitch. And before I go into it, I just want to say I think the medics are the winners of the, of the tournament for me. I don't think there's going to be a national team that actually wins it for me. It's those two medics that saved Christian Eriksen's life who are the winners of this tournament. And I mean, it was heartbreaking. I mean, Christian Eriksen, truly great player, world-class footballer. You know, Bless the English Premier League, one of the best attacking midfielders to play in the league in the last 10 years. And to see that, it's just, it just makes you sad. And obviously, thankfully, he's still alive. He's in a stable condition. And going back to your initial question, I think maybe there can be more breaks put in place for these footballers because we see them playing football week in, week out. During this pandemic where people have been passing away left, right and centre, these players have been asked to play weekly. They had no summer last summer. Go straight to the Euros this summer. Season starts again in a few months. And then where do these players rest? So when these incidents happen, it just shines a light on the lack of rest time that these players have. And I think something needs to be done.
3: One man we forgot to mention is Anthony Taylor because he interceded very quickly to allow the medics onto the pitch and you know as Dot mentioned these footballers are seen as slabs of meat almost like you put the rules in place they must conform there was talk about the ESL taking place again who does this benefit the money men and I just think I thought the decision to go on after that incident was the wrong one to be honest Um, they said they consulted with Ericsson and he said boys go out and play but I think when you talk about the emotional state that his colleagues, that his friends must have been in to go out onto that pitch, it was no surprise they lost the game. But again, as we mentioned, the result of that game, that was secondary. The fact that he's well, you know, on his way to recovery is the best thing because when you saw that he had sort of shades of Fabrice Mwamba, Mark Vivian Fowey, where, you know, when they stopped and obviously Mark Vivian Fowey lost his life. And yeah, we don't want to be seeing that. And, you know... (laughs) The positive is, if you wanted that to happen anywhere in the world, is on a football pitch in front of thousands of people with the right medical response, the ambulance. So yeah, just find God he's alive.
0: No, yeah,
2: sorry, Pete. Just just lastly to add, I think going back to to what Des said about in terms of where where you want that to happen is probably the football pitch because there's immediate ambulance on stage and it's it's within seconds it could be that 30 seconds difference where they run onto the pitch and save his life. But I just think a lot of people had issues when Jürgen Klopp was talking about there's too much football. Pep Guardiola keeps coming out. Oli came out and said there's too much football. And they're saying this for a reason. And I think we need to start listening to managers who are in positions of power because these guys know best. And I think just to play more games and more games and more games, it just doesn't make sense to me.
1: Yeah, I completely agree with what you both said. I think... A lot of people have questioned whether the managers are saying it to try and gain some kind of professional advantage, but they're not. They're saying it out of genuine care for their players. And I think once this is, once we've sort of allowed Ericsson time to sort of get better, and we can really figure out what happened with him because their doctors still haven't haven't worked that one out yet. I do think there need to be questions asked of UEFA and FIFA and the and the leagues in general because there has been too much football played, and you could have shortened a league season. You could have scrapped a couple of cups. Or you could have just pushed this tournament back and pushed the next year's start date of the leagues back. And I think we're going to hopefully see no more of this. But if we if football carries on in this way, they have to know that something is going to happen. Because we said this last summer when they said that they were still going to hold the years on the same day and it was going to be a full season. We said that is risking injuries. Mm. Unfortunately, it turned out to be something a lot worse. I want to move now onto matters on the pitch. And we're going to start with England, of course, who got their campaign off to a pretty solid start, a 1-0 win over Croatia. Dej, what were your immediate takeaways from an England perspective? Um, Let's start with the team news. Were you surprised by the team that Gareth Southgate picked?
3: One of the takeaways was don't try and predict what Gareth Southgate is going to do. <laughs> because before the game, I was thinking England were going to start with a three at the back. And when he came to a 4 2 3 1, I didn't expect Tyrone Mings to start, if I'm being honest, because I felt in the two friendlies before the tournament, he almost played his way out of the team. And obviously, the front three positions was crucial because before the game, I was saying, I thought Mason Mount, Foden and Jack Grealish will start. But obviously, Dot made the point that, OK, who's going to go in behind? It's sort of everyone coming to the ball. And that's what Southgate done. He, he played Raheem Sterling, who's tried and trusted. 13 goals and 17 appearances. And he came good again yesterday. But I think the performance was what it needed to be. It was sort of like controlled aggression. And the move that sort of won the game, Calvin Phillips, he was meant to be one of the two, but he almost broke the lines like a Steven Gerrard run, then played in Raheem Sterling. So, yeah, the team wasn't what I expected. But Gareth Southgate, he's in a place where he knows these players inside out. He spent three or four years grooming them, so he knows them to a T, what he can expect from them. So, yeah, us to Gareth Southgate. You got it right on this occasion.
2: Yeah. Uh, and I said it, I said it um, in our Euro preview show that it has to be a four-two-three-one, and I'm going to go with you know, Declan Rice and Calvin Phillips at that base. Because for me, in big games, international football, you need that security in midfield. And what those two offer off the ball is as good as what any of the other England players offer on the ball. So I think you need to have that stability and security centrally. For me, the only shock was Kieran Trippier at left-back. I thought we would see a Luke Shaw or Ben Chilwell at left-back because I just think it offers better balance. And there was a few times when, Kieran Trippier got into the final third, but he had to cut into his right foot because it's not a natural position for him. But going back to the team lineup, my only difference in terms of starting eleven was actually Jack Grealish. But that's because I probably have a Jack Grealish bias. I think he's England's best player. I love watching him play. He's the player that excites me most. But the only difference in my formation and setup to Gareth Southgate's formation and setup is that he went with Mason Mount, who played fantastically yesterday.
1: So can I ask then, based on that, based on the result, and when we're recording on Monday morning, so we haven't seen Scotland play, we don't know what their result against the Czech Republic will be. But what changes, if any, would both of you make for the next game? Because I've seen some speculation, I think Jamie Carragher was saying earlier, that you want to consider at some point resting Harry Kane because England are now in a good position to qualify from the group. It's a long tournament, and the last thing we need is someone like Kane, who is perhaps England's most important player, to start burning out if we reach the quarterfinals or semifinals.
2: I think For me, Harry a tricky one because I'm almost contradicting myself because I just said Jack Grealish is England's best player, but Harry Kane is England's best player as well. And recently he hasn't banged in the goals for England the way we expect him to bang them in. And I, I watched him very closely yesterday. He was dropping deep, he was trying to link things up, but it didn't quite happen for him. He had that big opportunity where he collided with the post, a horrible collision. Do you rest him or do you play him into form? I think you play him into form because he's England's best player. I think you have to keep playing him. And even if he doesn't score in the second game or the third game, you have to keep playing Harry Kane because you know, once it comes to the clutch moments, he's going to deliver for England.
3: In the thing yeah. with England, though, they've got an embarrassment of riches in that attacking first. So I wouldn't be surprised to see a Dominic Calvert-Lewin start because I believe against Scotland, that physical nature, against the Grant Hanleys and stuff, that could work in a favour. It's not like you're playing a, a technical team. You know the sort of challenge that Scotland are going to bring. And obviously, I would expect a left-back to come into play as well, to be honest. I think Ben Chilwell would have probably started, but because of his Champions League exertions, it kind of makes sense. And we were sort of questioning why is Trippier in the squad. But again, as I was mentioning in my last point, he's got a few untouchables in his squad. No matter what we think, we're on the outside. He sees them on a day-to-day. He knows them as human beings, so he knows what they're going to bring to the table. And Tyrone Mings, I was shocked that he started, but he played well. We have to give him his flowers. He did play well. He was solid. Him and Stone seemed to have a good relationship. So I would probably think he'll be the same as usual, but I won't be shocked if Harry Kane doesn't start.
1: Dej, very quickly, before we move on, can I bring you up on that Dominic Calvert-Lewin point? Would you consider allowing Kane to drop into the 10 and having Calvert-Lewin start so that he could then try and create play as well as scoring goals or do you think that's starting to overthink things a little bit Because so obviously for the sterling goal we saw the runners off the ball and then obviously if you've got harry kane has got a good pass in him as well so if you have him deeper and then you play another person who's going to make those runs in it gives him a slightly different di- dimension
3: i think the whole premise of playing harry kane you know Number number nine is to score the goals. And we don't want to start going into Tottenham territory where you're dropping in deep and you've got your two runners because I think England have enough in their arsenal to be able to play with Harry Kane as a sole striker and the others like the Grealishes, the Sterlings, the Foldens, you know, Sanchos, to be able to do that sort of work. So I think Harry Kane should be a striker, nothing else.
1: Yeah, I think, I think you're probably right there, Dej. I think... England are probably going to start getting into dangerous territory if they begin to overthink things in terms of goal scoring. Obviously, the goal scorer himself on uh, Saturday, on Sunday's game was Raheem Sterling of Manchester City, a player who's really struggled for form and was, uh, was one of the players singled out for the Champions League defeat for Manchester City. People were really questioning why Pep Guardiola handed in the start, but he really turned up and uh, produced for England on Sunday. Dot, do you think that It was always going to be the case of Sterling starting and do you think that people perhaps forgot just how good he is and how useful he will be for England in this tournament?
2: Sorry Pete, I'm not answering your question but not just singled out in the Champions League final, singled out in the World Cup as well when England had a terrific run to the semi-final. He was almost used as a scapegoat by large sections of the media and fans as England's worst performer but for me, had to start because you know what you're getting from Raheem Sterling. You're going to get that, you know, determination, that pace to run in behind. And that was my big worry about, you know, some of the predicted lineups going with Grealish Foden and Mason Mount. I was just thinking and looking at it. Where's the pace? Who's going to bring that dynamism? Who's going to run into the final third? And I think Raheem Sterling, yes, he may not be playing well. Yes, he may not have confidence but you know he's always going to do the right things. And those things have been trained into him by Pep Guardiola. Keep running in behind. Keep getting into the right opportunities. And when you get your chance, finally take it. And yesterday he delivered.
1: Yeah, he absolutely did. Let's, uh, let's move on now to another player who certainly was taking his chances over the weekend, and that is Belgium's <laughs> Romelu Lukaku. Yeah. He, uh, going into the tournament, I think everyone expected Lukaku to perform well. He obviously came, He's coming off a season where he helped Inter Milan win... So, yeah, he's one of the most informed strikers in the world right now. I think there were actually probably wider questions, though, about the performance of Belgium in general. I think a lot of people were not convinced that this team really had it. Maybe they were at their peak two, two or three years ago. And now there were worries about whether certain players were too old. Obviously, Eden Hazard has had a really tough season with Real Madrid. Kevin De Bruyne had that nasty injury in the Champions League final. But they absolutely swept Russia away. A very passive, very disappointing Russia Um, Dej, I want to come to you first. Just how impressed were you with Belgium? No,
3: I was very impressed. Like you can only beat what's put in front of you. And they've done a very good job in dispatching of them. And obviously you mentioned Romelu Lukaku. This was a guy that was a a lightning rod for criticism when he was at Manchester United. People were saying he's heavy, he's got a baggy touch. But you could sort of see in that game the work that Antonio Conte done with him. I think Lukaku came out and said for the first three, six months... Conte said, listen, we're just going to work with you You're back-to-goal, your, back your link-up play. And you could see a trimmer Lukaku, a more potent Lukaku, getting in behind, losing his defenders, finishes. I mean, he's just a full package. And, you know, I think he's going to be one of the strikers that are on the top of those charts. And he's probably thinking to himself that, you know what, this is the tournament for me. I'm going to make my mark. Not as, It's not about Hazard. It's not about De Bruyne. People probably saw them as the main men. He's probably saying, no, I'm the main man. Yeah. I won the skedetto. I won the top goal scorer in the league. This is my time. So I think, yeah, we're going to see a big performance from Lukaku in this tournament.
1: Oh, we Obviously, Russia didn't really give us a lot about Belgium's defence because they didn't really seem to realise they were playing a game until the 60th minute when they suddenly started trying to mm-hmm. have a go. Do you think there's anything we can take from this game in terms of how to beat Belgium? Were there anything was there anything you saw in terms of ways to get at them? Or was this just more a case of belgium's attack showing off just how good they are
2: yeah when you said how impressed were you by belgium if i'm being honest not that impressed i know they won convincingly but they need to play better if they're going to win this tournament i think they were missing three key players witzel in the midfield kevin de Bruyne, who for me is the best midfielder in the world and edin hazard who we know on his day confident playing in form is one of the best players in the world so I think if you bring those three in it goes from a tier two team to a tier one team I think personally so I don't think we can take much from their performance but I think defensively if you have pace you will cause them trouble and I think that's going to be the big question mark for Belgium can they handle teams that have pace can they handle Kylian Mbappe, Anton Griezmann can they handle Raheem Sterling Marcus Rashford. And I think if they can, they're going to go find this tournament. If not, they'll have an early exit.
1: I think, yeah, I think for me, it was mildly alarming that they're still bringing on a 35-year-old <laughs> Thomas Vermaelen who's playing in Japan at the moment. <laughs> um, but I think, I think it's a key point with Hazard. I think he he is a very different player for Belgium. I think we even saw that when he was at Chelsea. He's There's something comes alive in him when he's playing for Belgium. And I think there's a reason why he wears the captain's armband. He is a talismanic figure for them. Let's move to a team who unlike Belgium I think most people thought would really struggle in this tournament the Netherlands I think coming into this tournament with no Virgil van Dijk of course um, no Ronald Koeman as manager I think people were predicting they could get they wouldn't even get out of the what is quite a tough group actually um full of potential dark horses and I'm not entirely sure they convinced us but they certainly entertained us with a, a fantastic 3-2 win over the Ukraine Dej, I want to come to you first, um, specifically on the Netherlands. Does this reassure you about them or does this, or are you still worried about them trying to go far in the tournament?
3: I'm still worried about them. And I think in our preview show, I said they're my tip for the big team to flop, kind of, because when I look at their defence, it doesn't fill me with confidence. Um, you've got Steclenberg in goal. De Ligt, I think he's injured. And the centre-back offerings doesn't really do it for me. Nathan Ake was a sub. You've got Van Arnhoen on the left. So they play a free for free obviously. And genuine Wijnaldum is the more advanced of the midfielders. Him and the Pace seemed like a, they were on a two-man crusade to try and lead their charge. And at times, it looked good. They had a lot of opportunities. There was a lot of overloads on the right-hand side for Dumfries. Before he got his goal, he missed like two really, really good chances, particularly the first one, the header what he missed. But, I think watching this game showed why I think they're going to come up short because they had a 2-0 unassailable lead. You'd think they were going to kick on from there. Then again, it comes down to the management. I thought bringing off your two defenders, I didn't. That that wasn't the right decision for me. Then we saw what happened. Ukraine got into the game. Yarmolenko produced his trademark finish. We all know it's going to happen but he just can't stop it, cutting in on his left-hand side and whipping it around. But credit to them. They mustered up the courage to be able to go in and get the winner. I thought the keeper should have done better, but I think it's not total football. It's good football, but I don't think this is going to be football that can win them the tournament.
1: <laughs> Dot, you're obviously someone who watches uh, Ginny Wijnaldum and Dot, and mm-hmm. with Van Dijk gone, he's the captain. He's the one who really is trying to make everything tick. Do you think, well, there's not something we necessarily see at liverpool in terms of the more expansive style of his mm. game he, he's more of a worker he distributes the ball quickly keeps things ticking over for liverpool do you think he's got it in his locker to keep playing this way and keep being the focal point of this uh, netherlands team
2: so i think i think so if you go prior to liverpool when he was at newcastle he was playing in the final third so he is a player that you know, runs into the box, makes further man runs, you know, gets goals, gets assists. That was his game until he came to Liverpool. And I think Klopp almost changed his positions and look, you're going to play a team role. You're going to be the metronome in midfield. You're going to manipulate the ball side to side and, and move it quickly. But I think Gino Ronaldo is a goal-scoring threat. And we've seen that with Netherlands for the last few years. When he plays in that attacking position, he scores goals. He gets assists. So... Is it going to be good enough to take them all the way? Absolutely not, because I don't think that team is good enough to make quarterfinals, semifinals. If they had Van Dijk, would you change that opinion? I think if they had Van Dijk and De Ligt, how do teams score against that? Big difference, but now teams are going to be licking their lips saying, you know what, no Van Dijk, no De Ligt. Let's have fun here. Let's, let's attack them. And ultimately, I don't think that defence is going to stack up against the best in Europe
1: no i think i agree with that a quick one from me on the ukraine before we move on i think i was one of many people who sort of tipped ukraine as a dark horse this is a golden generation for them they've won euro youth tournaments and i think and i think what we learned from last night is that andrew shashenko is actually building a really fun team i was a little bit surprised they went with four at the back rather than three i think it suggests to me that they thought they could really get out the netherlands and i think they actually didn't expect too much from them I'd be interested to see what they do for the next matches against Austria and North Macedonia. But I do think that a few players really did stand out, obviously. Andrew Yomalenko, um, what goal was absolutely wonderful, and I think there is real talent in the Ukrainian team, and I think even if they fall a little bit short of this tournament, I think we're still going to be seeing a lot of them over the next five or ten years or so. Let's move on to the very start, as it were, and let's go back all the way to Friday night, to Italy. Uh, a magnificent opening ceremony Andrea Bacalli was in fine oh, form it was yeah. a performance to, to truly move you I felt um and then the football was just as good for the most part I thought Italy started a little bit slowly but they really settled in pretty quickly after sort like, 30 minutes or so and they pretty much tore Turkey who again were one of many people's do- yeah. uh, mm. dog horse tips yeah me yeah. <laughs> me, me as well they, they tore them to shreds um let's start let's start there dog. let's start with Italy and I don't really necessarily think any of us saw this coming, despite the impressive win against the Czech Republic in, uh, in the build-up. And I think everyone knows that Roberto Mancini has done a good job building Italy back up again. But I don't think anyone expected this, did they?
2: Probably not, but I don't think that's indicative to Italy's performance. I think Turkey moved me in all the wrong directions, if I'm being totally honest, because it was so negative big tournament, you've got very good players. Why are you approaching a game just sitting back? And I think you're not going to win football matches playing like that. And I think Italy looked at Turkey and said, hold on, these lot have nothing to them. They're just here to defend. Let's probe, let's stay patient. We may not score in the first half, but eventually the cracks will start to appear and we will get our goals. And we saw that with their own goal, where the centre-back Demiral, you know... They got flashed across the goal, bang, into the net. And I think that almost broke Turkey's spirit. And then for five or 10 minutes, they came out, you know what, let's try and attack, let's let's go for the game. But they just didn't have any belief or confidence that they can score a goal against Italy. And I think Italy's experience at the back, and just the way they managed the game, typical Italian style, pragmatic, but also attacking Flair in the final third with players like Insigne, who I'm a big fan of for years, They just had too much for Turkey and good performance from Italy, but I'm not going to jump the gun and say they're one of the contenders to win this tournament. I think you can only beat what was in front of you. They achieved that. Well done to them. Let's see what they do in the next game.
1: Yeah, I think that's a fairly fair assessment. Uh, Dej, in terms of the lineup, we obviously need that Marco Verratti be missing, so Manuel Locatelli came in. It was a little bit of a surprise to not see um, Federico Chiesa start with Domenico Berardi preferred instead. Do you think that moving forward, this Italy team has enough to cope with some of Europe's truly elite defences?
3: That's the big question, Mark. When you go on club form, you say, yes, Immobile is a potent attacker, but he needs space. To operate in and the game that we saw on Friday there wasn't that much space but as Dot said Italy probed but they're my dark horses I said that on the preview show no one's really talking about them we're here in Portugal Germany France all of these teams but Mancini's built a great great team you know and people are saying our oh, typical Italy but this wasn't a typical Italy typical Italy is one nil and we sit back we take our three points this team was relentless, man. They were pressing onto the 89th minute. They weren't settling. Cellini was running up the pitch, trying to probe and pass, but I think they're the sort of team that could sort of nick a game against a big team. I think (laughs) they've got that defensive assuredity. They've got that now, that know-how with Cellini, Benucci, and they've got that now. like, Italians, they've got this thing Mm. about seeing out games and, I would back them in a one-off game to beat a big team. But whether they can win it, I think that's to be seen. It depends on the draw. And obviously, first, second and third, it's a bit staggered. We don't know which teams draw who, so it depends who they get. So, yeah, that's my take
1: on that. That's interesting because it leads me on to my next question, which is, is this a similar situation to Belgium, whereas we don't really know about their defence yet and we need to see it tested against a team who is going to be more attacking, and particularly a team who is going to have more pace in their lineup? Because let's be honest, Giorgio Chiellini versus Boraciovas wasn't exactly the 100-meter final. Like it, <laughs> so, is this is this the case of we need to wait until they play, say, a France or an England, who will put quick runners in behind and will really test them in that way? Because that's probably the one concern you might have with the partnership of Chiellini and Bonucci.
2: I don't think so, you know, because these players have the know-how. We've seen them do it for years. They're really nasty players. you know. If you're going to run in behind, they'll just kick your ankle. You know, They've got their experience on how to manage a game. But I think the key thing for Italy for me is if they are playing their top team, they cannot go a goal down because that's when I think they may be in some trouble. I think for Italy to go far in this tournament, they consistently have to score the first goal. If not, I don't think they have enough to overturn a deficit in a game. But what I would say is that Dej mentioned that this is a different style to Italy that we're seeing. And I think that's what happens when you have players like Jorginho and Barella in midfield because these players will control the game. These players are obsessed with the football. They want to get the ball, manipulate it, control the possession, play it at their own pace. But my only problem with that is off the ball. Are, is that midfield going to be capable of competing with the power of England, the power of and pace and technical ability of France. Belgium's midfield, that's, that's where it's going to be won and lost for Italy. Can they compete in the midfield? And ultimately, I don't think they can.
3: And Also, you saw their confidence develop as the game went on. Spinozola on the left kept advancing. He knew, you know what, there's no threat coming back. <laughs> I'm going to open up this game and push high. So against the bigger teams, you would expect Florenzi and Spinozola to clip in and sit and allow the ball players like Jorginho, Barella, Chile, um, Chiesa to come and get the ball and play those advancing balls forward to Insigne and Immobile.
2: I don't think I, I've got a question for you. What's your, where do you stand on Immobile? Is he one of the best strikers in Europe? Where, where do you stand on him as a, as a player?
1: I don't think he's one of the best strikers in Europe. I think, you know how you were talking earlier about Belgium going from a Tier 2 team to a Tier 1 team? I think Mm. Immobile is a tier two striker. Mm. I think in tier one, you've got Harry Kane, Robert Lewandowski, Karim Benzema, and maybe one or two others. Lukaku, Lukaku, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, (laughs) Robert Lukaku, of course, yeah, and you are also getting one. Um, So I think that's who you're looking at, is that they're the really elite strikers. They're the sort of players who, in their prime, you're paying anywhere between 80 to 120 million pounds for them. I think Chilo Immobile is very much like a... Like a one B or two A type striker, I think he is really, really good. My one concern with him, which I think is what you mentioned before, is he doesn't create off his own accord. So with with those players I mentioned earlier, out of nowhere they can suddenly create a shot or a bit of movement, or even like in some cases like a really acute little pass or touch, and all of a sudden they've got a chance or their team has got a chance. Immobile is more of a system-based player where he needs to be the one who's finishing off the chances that others create. Now, that's not a bad thing when you do it at the hit rate that he does because a lot of teams in the world are crying out for a striker who can score with a consistency that Immobile does. But he is not the sort of player who will elevate those around him in the same way because if he was, Lazio would be playing Champions League football and they're not. So for me, he's always going to be just one tier below. And I, I, again, I really don't think that's a bad thing because it is so hard to do the things that those top guys do. It's so difficult to be that. So if you can be the best goal scorer that you can be, you're still going to have a very successful career. And I think in this Italy team with so many ball players, that little midfield three, they love to be on the ball. They don't want someone holding up onto the ball. They don't want someone like Harry Kane dropping deeper to try and create chances. You just stay up there. Don't worry about that. We're going to create the chances for you. So I think for this Italy team, he is a really good option. And I think he has the chance to be the, the, the tournament's top scorer. But, as you said, will it be enough for them to win the tournament? I don't know. And I think with that, I, would, I just want to have one more thing, honestly, and not particularly Giorgio Chiellini, because I thought it was absolutely magnificent that before the Italian national anthem started playing, he had a little cheeky smile to the camera because he knew that an absolute banger of a tune was coming on. He knows yeah. how he knows how good their national anthem is. Yeah. and he and, it, and there is nothing... You know you're at an international tournament when the Italians are belting out their national anthem. <laughs> the <mandate>. passion, <laughs> the veins <laughs> in the it's like, was... You want to
3: know it, you want to sing it as well, but you I just know. don't know the lyrics. <laughs> it, was,
1: it was something we really, really missed uh, from, from uh, the World Cup three years ago. Okay. I think that pretty much wraps it up. We've got the other game in Group D coming up later today, which may well have happened by the time you listen to it. And then we've got Group E going on this afternoon and this evening. Make sure that you keep Christian Eriksen and his family in your thoughts. He may be conscious now and talking, but there can be further complications. And until we know for sure what actually happened to him and the doctors can know how to prevent it from recurring, and then we can know the next steps for him and his recovery. Just keep him in your thoughts because we really don't want anything else to go wrong from this stage on. And hopefully it keeps on as a positive uh, trajectory. Christian, on the off chance that you're listening, everyone in Eurosport and the Beautiful Game podcast is supporting you all the way and make sure you stay strong. For everyone else, please enjoy the rest of the football for the rest of the day and Tuesday. We're going to be back on Wednesday to review all of the group action and look forward to the second, uh, second leg of all the group games. Until then, this has been Pete Sharland for Eurosport and the Beautiful Game. My thanks ever to Dot and Dej, and we'll catch you next time.
0: Market.